Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. First, the numbers. Second, the economic principles. Third, the judgment of other people whose opinion I value more highly than my own. Yeah. Number four is like Dan's gut instinct. That's probably the thing I have the least confidence <laughs> and faith in because, you know, because that's what the data says. When Dan Fraley talks, I listen. In 2014, Dan was consulting the wildly popular retail bag company Rumi on their growth strategy when founders Jay and Katie Lee invited Dan full-time as head of sales to execute that strategy. Already a powerful brand in its own right who got their start matching fashion with functionality in an eco-conscious way, their bags carried by celebrities like Mario Batali, Jessica Alba, and in stores like Target and Whole Foods, Rumi, the retail company, added a promotional products division that became Rumi Brand Suite that Dan helped initiate. In the past few years, their sales have skyrocketed over 500%, and this year, ASI recognized Rumi Brand Suite as the fastest growing supplier in the industry. Dan is also running for the PPAI board, and we discuss how he plans to take the success that they've had at Rumi Brand Suite and influence and apply that to the industry. The one other thing, uh, because you asked about threats, uh, that actually does concern me because it seems like nobody's talking about it, is direct-to-consumer customized retail. We talk about retail trends, collaboration best practices, and principles from some of the most fashion-forward and modern distributors. Yeah. They also, incidentally, tend to be the people who seem to do the most repeat orders and the most high price point orders and have really cool clients to work with because whether it's the energy that they bring to the table or the way that they're constantly radiating that energy through social, it's stuff that people want to be around. Today's episode is courtesy of CommonSkew, the effortless business management platform that empowers you to process more orders and grow your business. For more information or to start your free trial, visit commonskew.com. What was it like coming into the promo space? What did you think it was going to be like? And then what was it really like? It's funny. You know, I wasn't you know, familiar with the industry at all, except for some of the inbound orders that we had been receiving. So I didn't walk in with a lot of preconceived notions, but tried to just keep an open mind and, and more than anything, open ears. Because if you listen to your customers, and this is good, you know, from my experience too, in, in plenty of other industries as well, um, especially as a consultant, I actually used to do commercial due diligence pre-acquisition for, for private equity investors. And so you basically in that, in that role, you spend a lot of time talking to customers and to other market players and just learning and listening. And that actually put us in pretty good stead to start things out in this industry because we, you know, one of the first things that we learned was if you have a hundred rep distributor, uh, you know, your distributor company is not your client. That individual human being, that single distributor rep is really who you need to sell to yeah, because, you know, the, you know, name your company, but, you know, if they have uh, a rep in LA and, and a rep in New York and one in Chicago, they're all playing from a different play the playbook in terms of products and capabilities and, and personalities and, of course, customers. And so that was really one of the first ways that we structured everything that we did uh, in terms of running the sales org from literally day one. Uh, we even set up our accounting system that way. So mm -hmm. everything is done 
at the human being level, not at the company level. Collaboration has been a, a key to your business success. It almost sounds from the get-go, it almost sounds as if you were ready-made to be a collaborative product because of the capabilities and the design capabilities and the production capabilities that you had. So you probably got a very unique experience with collaboration. So what's the difference between sourcing and collaboration in our industry? I mean, many of us distributors might look at suppliers too much as a source and not a partner. How, what's the distinction between the two, and how have you seen that really work with Rumi Brand Suite? That's one where you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, what do you really bring to the table? If all you offer is an undifferentiated product and standard 1CP, 2CP imprinting and not a ton of creative support and not a ton of, ton of you know, collaborative, creative insight as a supplier, uh, then you really can't complain if people see you as basically just an accounting entity that factories, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to kind of be a little self-accountable at that point because it is one of those things where you kind of get where you get. If, if, if I can come to you and, and give you something that's differentiated as a product, but also differentiates to your client and to you, right? I don't just say, well, you know, uh, you need a uh, good $5 bag. Here's my $5 bag. But instead I say, well, I have a couple different options and we can modify them this way or this way. If they're feeling a little bit more budget conscious right now, then we can strip off some features or we can simplify the imprint or we can move to a longer delivery timeline. You know, if, if I can be dynamic and, and adapt around your needs, then I earn the right to ask for collaboration from a distributor. I don't just come to expect it because I'm a nice guy. What do some of the best success stories look like in collaboration with you and distributor? I know you're known for your retail brand. You've obviously been in Target and Whole Foods on the retail side. So you have your finger on the pulse of fashion forward design and style. You've also worked with distributors that I know and respect, and, and they seem to be more fashion forward and uh, the very creative thinking distributors. What are some of the secrets you've learned working with them that help with this collaboration process? What defines a good collaboration? It's when everybody involved shared all the information and expertise that they had to, had to bear. They didn't hold anything back because of a lack of trust, nor because of a lack of enthusiasm. And everybody not just shared all that, but cared a lot about the outcome because, you know, they, they kind of formed a little ad hoc moment in time team and, and came together to bring everything that they could. Yeah. That's what it looks like as, as the yeah, output. Really good. The question is, how do you get there? And, and yeah. you know, to, to me, that, that kind of, you know, you don't get to choose who the other person is, but you can sort of influence them by what you bring out. And to me, that's just basically trusting in them and anticipating that they'll, you know, do the same thing for you, that they'll reciprocate. How could a distributor engage better with a supplier on projects? Are there practical steps they can take? The more information that they can provide, the better. That gives us, you know, more to respond to. And you know, we get requests from a whole bunch of different types of distributors. That's one of the great things about being a supplier is you work with so many different types of people and different approaches yeah. to yeah. the distributor business. And so you get to see a lot of them and, and, you know, you can, you can usually tell that if someone comes in, uh, you know, especially for our particular brand and where our price point tends to sit, if someone comes in and wants to talk mostly about price, well, then that means they're differentiating on price and they're not differentiating 
on the service level that they bring to the table yeah. or the creativity of what they bring or, or the you know, scope of, of product or, or anything like that. And so if that's their focus, that means they're not adding that other value. And you know, frankly, it might mean it's just a customer that that's kind of all they value is, is, the, is the, you know, the, the low price point. But if that's the case, you know, we can also usually see, because, you know, again, you work with so many servers and get to see the way business works. They're probably not the person who's doing the most big, exciting value add, high creativity, really cool brand client uh, projects. They're, they're, you know, the ones kind of fighting for the smaller deals that are more, are more price driven rather than the ones that are really excited and really, you know, that, that you would tell a story about. You know, those types of things, so the ones that are, are worth remembering. And so, you know, I guess to answer your question, if you want a, you know, a reason to be collaborative with a supplier, you know, I think it's the best answer to that is, do you want to be unique and differentiated to your customers? And yeah. do you want to matter? Because if you're not going to try to bring that out of your suppliers, then what you're offering to your customer isn't going to be differentiated or unique either. And they're going to think the same thing. So one thing on collaborating, something I've noticed through the years, distributors, and I think this is changing considerably, thankfully, is that distributors viewing their supplier partners as true partners. And what I mean by that is I have seen through the years many distributors withholding information from their supplier partner. And the first thing you said when I asked about better collaboration was you talked about a transparency of sharing more details about the customer and the project. I think that's changing for the positive, but really that is the key to work better with supplier partners is to transfer more information about the end customer, the user, the purpose, beyond just budget and price point because – the suppliers like you that have these incredible creative capabilities have far more that you can bring to the table for that project if you know more about it. But if you don't, you're kind of operating blind. You tell me you're buying a gift for somebody, right? Let's yeah, just even take right. it away from business for a second, right? right. You're, you're going to buy a gift for someone and you say, Dan, you sell things. What would be a good gift to buy? Right. Kind of hard for me to tell you, Bobby. <laughs> you know, I'm going to need a little more info than that. It sounds so simplistic, but yet that's exactly I've seen what happens with many distributor and supplier transactions that are going on is that withholding information. I think on the distributor side, there's a reticence to share uh, about their customer and end user. I think that's drifting away, thankfully, um, particularly those who want to develop more robust campaigns and real applicable projects mm-hmm. for their customer. You have to know the details, like you said. And I love how you made it that, that simplistic. It's so true. And I'll add one thing other to that, too, that I wish more people understood was mm-hmm. just how little there is to lose for a distributor to do that. Because yeah. there's yeah. a big economic moat around distributors for, for suppliers, which is simply the cost of sale. Right? But like, yeah. you know, one of my real passions outside of work well, it kind of overlaps with a fair amount, is economics and just how markets work and why. And one of the great things to kind of know is that everything is the way it is for a reason. And those reasons might change and then the outcomes might change. But the reason why our industry is set up the way it is is because it's completely economically non-viable for any supplier, even somebody like you know, huge, like a, like a Leeds or, or an Alpha or something to actually pursue corporate marketer and clients on their own. I just don't have enough to sell them. It, it works for a distributor because you can sell them everything that I and the other 
99% of the industry sell, but I can only sell what I sell. It's just, it's just not a model that works. So it's impossible if you can do that. And I think we all know that if any supplier does, even once to certainly make a habit of taking, taking advantage of the trust of a distributor, well, that's going to get around really quick in an industry that's as integrated and collaborative and communicative as ours. And they're not going to be in business much longer. It's, it's an invisible moat, but it's there and very real, I think. And, and I think if more distributors were aware of that, it would actually give them a lot more confidence yeah. to be more forthcoming with that information. Dan, you guys are known for your collaboration. Can you share with us a successful story of collaboration? Right now, we're working on what is, for us, a very, very large project, um, getting pretty close to a million dollars on a single project actually. So very exciting for us, but it's really exciting because it's just so many people involved. So it's, it's one of our brand partners near, they make really cool double wall vacuum insulated hydration products and journals and bags. And just a lot of really cool design forward stuff. And they have a kind of cool second piece to their brand too. That I'll get to in a second, but great brand that we represent. And, uh, we are working on a project with, you know, the, where the end client is basically one of the rideshare companies. So it's going to be 60,000 tumblers. And it was brought to us by one of our favorite distributors who brought that to us. And we came up with a couple ideas, one of which was uh, this near tumbler, which is a great fit because if you think about it, it's for the drivers sitting in the cars. You put a tumbler in a cup holder and, and just, you know, it's one more interaction with that rideshare company brand. Uh, you know, on our team just alone, there's, I think, five people internally involved in, in this project. There's obviously the brand on the back end, the customization. It's just a ton of ton of moving pieces and a ton of people involved and kind of giving it all their, their absolute best. But the second level piece to it is how we're not just customizing the product fully from scratch, but also the giving program. So every mere product is actually tied to a specific philanthropic project somewhere in the world. So it could be a new clean water well in Uganda or a literacy program somewhere in Mexico or something like this. Uh, a lot of things stateside as well. There's a code on each project that allows you to see like the specific water well that is being funded by that in individual tumbler. So it's a really cool setup. We're actually customizing not just the product, like I said, but also the entire giving program for those products around the rideshare company brand. The net result is it's a bunch of people coming together across one, two, three, four, five separate organizations to create a really unique and pull together branding experience that goes beyond a product to an impact on the world. When we were talking, you, you, you felt there were a few challenges facing us today. One was the internet and the other was globalization. How do you see the internet impacting business in the promo industry today? Do you feel there's more of a threat with the internet or do you feel there's more of an opportunity? I think it actually, in a lot of ways, impacts suppliers even more than distributors. Hmm. I think distributors are, are frequently very concerned about the four imprints and the company stores and these types of things. Uh, but... The other effect of the internet isn't even corporate marketers trying to circumvent distributors. It's distributors being able to circumvent undifferentiated suppliers. 
Right. Which, you know, again, like we were talking about before, is kind of shame on you if, if you're the supplier and don't choose to do anything to differentiate who you are and what you do. But it makes it very easy to, you know, if I'm, if I'm selling undifferentiated bags to skip me and go straight to China. Um, and we see that happening a lot. Uh, you know, my, my friends at Sobe were, uh, you know, just on the cover of counselor for a lot of the successes that they've had. And they actually point out that, you know, they've had a lot of success going straight to, to China for a lot of their, a lot of their supply. And I fault them for that 0%. You know, if, if I as a supplier, I'm not going to do anything to make myself more valuable than, than, you know, somebody uh, halfway around the world, then that's on me. That's not on, that's not on the distributor. That's a pretty refreshing outlook when you hear a lot of folks will get up in arms about this topic. But I think that's you know that's exactly right. It's exactly what I say about distributors too. If we're not providing value add to our customers where they can't just click a mouse and get something online, then it's our fault. Um, and so I, I really appreciate that outlook. This gets a little bit into your candidacy for the board with that kind of um, outlook and that kind of a viewpoint. That's a strong viewpoint to take to the market and help suppliers understand where they can increase value, help distributors understand where they can increase value. So globalization obviously has impacted suppliers directly. It's impacted distributors some, but I can see where it's impacted suppliers certainly more. So regarding your candidacy for the board, are some of those, is that one of the topics, sort of one of your big topics? And why are you running and and what kind of things do you see as opportunities and threats to the industry? Really excited to have and and happy to be able to talk about this because I'm honestly just thrilled to be even with the chance to to run, let alone uh, possibly be able to win and and have uh, have hopefully a big impact on our industry for the better. So really, the two kind of big ideas that I'm trying to focus the candidacy around is engaging with change, which you know I'm sure is not a surprise given some of the things we've talked about already, and. Right. The, set, the and the second topic is basically engaging with the next generation in uh, and in in both of those in a sort of less fear oriented way and a less stasis oriented way and specifically for the value add that I hopefully will be able to bring to the table is to share some of the perspectives and insights that have driven Rumi Brand Suite's success. Uh, honestly, piggybacking on retail trends and reaching outside of the industry for not just retail trends, but also technology and the way we've been able to use that and a lot of different things we do and best practices from other industries in terms of how to run a sales and service organization and and all these types of things. Um, And then of course, you know, being a millennial consumer focused brand that is also populated by, pretty much exclusively millennials. We actually have an ad coming out in a couple of days in, uh, in promo marketing magazine that uh, kind of pokes fun that I'm the, the oldest guy in the office by a uh, couple years and you know, has my picture and everybody else. And uh, unfortunately I'm also the one with the most receded hairline, but you know, we'll, we'll survive. It's an everyday struggle. <laughs> Not like you, I should say, Bobby. Yeah, yeah thanks. <laughs> I don't know, man. The receiving, it's happening, it's happening. You're going to be a great candidate for, you're a great candidate for the board. And 
the reason why I say that is not because you're here in front of me, so to speak, on this podcast, but because Rumi has grown something like 500 percent in a couple of years span. And you're recognized this year um, as the, the fastest growing supplier. There are obviously some things that you have figured out. But what I really value is this I, – I think this value-add topic is the central biggest topic for distributors and suppliers. And honestly, I hadn't seen it with this clear focus until I've talked to you today But how much that impacts suppliers as well. What do you see as the biggest threat to the industry in the next five years? And is that do you feel positive, concerned? I think there, there are two. I feel positive if – like like we said before, if we embrace change and engage it and make the most of it, uh, I feel negative if, if we don't. But I think we've got a great opportunity to, uh, and there's truly no better time than, than the present. Uh, I think if we look at technology in its many forms and how it currently impacts the industry and how it continues to change how it impacts the industry, it's one of those things that you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, the fear side of things means technology takes away people's jobs and upsets industries and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe cuts certain people out of the equation, whether it's an undifferentiated supplier or an undifferentiated distributor. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, it allows every single one of us who employs it and takes advantage of it, it being technology, to be able to impact and service our customers better than ever before and at broader scale than ever before. You know, one of the things I think when I look to the future of the industry is that you know, I think we can grow, frankly, a lot more quickly than we are if we embrace some of these things and, and take advantage of them. You know, I'm, I'm talking, you know, in excess of 5%, maybe even getting up to 10% for a couple of years. Um, but in addition, and, you know, I, know, I hate, you know, I'm a Colorado guy, right? So I'm try not to sound like too much of a hippie, but I will say you look back on, on, you know, your career so far and you probably remember some of the big financial wins, but more than anything, you remember the experiences and the lifestyle and the people and, and all those types of things and the, mm -hmm. and the quality of work you got to do. And you try to forget yeah. some of the more banal aspects of things and, and certainly the less happy times too. Uh, one of the great things I think about technology, if we, embrace it to the level we can is it'll, it'll freeze up so much of our time to actually focus on the creative aspects of what we do and the human yeah. interactive collaborative aspects of what we do lowers prices because you know by reducing some of that uh, kind of lower value add work that was previously taken up by humans and and by lowering prices of course you know to get back yeah. to the Supply and demand chart of an economist uh, expands the overall size of the industry. So I think those are those are some of the really good things. If we embrace that, and if we embrace some of the general generational opportunities about the single biggest chunk of purchasing power in the history of the world being the millennial generation, and some really hmm. smart and savvy and hardworking. Um, you know, human beings of that generation as well. We take advantage of both of those opportunities. I think the industry does really well. But one other thing, uh, because you asked about threats, uh, that actually does concern me because it seems like nobody's talking about it, is direct-to-consumer customized retail. And so, for example, a really well-known example is when Nike made 
fully customizable, um, created from scratch upon order Air Force Ones. Yeah. You could choose the color of every panel and print things on and on. And that's been, you know, years ago. Nike took the lead on that because they had the bankroll to do it back then. Well, all of those technologies from the software interface to on-demand uh, product creation to uh, back onshoring the actual labor of production to digital print, you know, all these technologies are becoming more prevalent and lower price point. Mm-hmm. And what that will actually enable, and I know this because, you know, I spend a lot of time in the retail world and I see what, what brands yeah. are doing out there. Uh, if we don't find a way to add more value to the process, uh, some of those brands are actually going to come into our industry and say, hey, I print, you know, this, this Air Force One at the same price I make a stock Air Force One. And if you're going to buy 700 pairs for a corporate order, yeah, I'll even give you a price break. And then, you know, there's no, no opportunity in that case for a distributor, uh, nor for, you know, a roomy brand suite that has been sort of the, you know, designed to be the sort of uh, honest broker between the retail world and the promo world. In, in Rumi Brand Suite, when you came into the market, I mean, someone could be following the story and argue that that's what Rumi Brand Suite did, except at the point where you were dealing directly with customers, when you decided you were going to invest in this industry, you stopped dealing directly with corporate customers. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly it. You know, basically, we were receiving some inbound orders from both distributors and from just direct corporate clients. And, you know, we said, this industry is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, let's make a thing of it. But at the same time, we said, you know, you, uh, you go to somebody's house, then you take off your shoes, right? You, you play by the rules yeah. of, of the game. And, yeah. uh, and that's what we adopted because, you know, one of, one of those kind of rules of, of thumb that I keep, I think, wherever I go is, especially if you're new to a place, if you think things don't make sense, or you can come up with a better way, you're probably wrong. Yeah. Unless you've like waited a while and, and really figured things out because everybody else has their own working brain too. So, you know, you come in and, and, and learn about why things are and, and, you know, there's probably a good chance that you've just failed to kind of get all the information before coming up yeah. with your brilliant opinion. So that's kind of what we did and it's, it's paid off uh, very well for us. So thanks to your yeah, yeah. I liked your example there, too, because I've often maintained that it's not going to be the big Amazon that comes in and disrupts the industry. Rather, it's going to be um, companies who are nipping away at product categories and that are, are stripping budget away from either distributors or suppliers because of some uniqueness like that. It's happening already and will continue to grow that way. Do you feel the traditional model, supplier, distributor, buyer, is threatened at all today? Do you think it's fragile or do you think it's strong, it's as strong as we want to make it? I think it's very strong. I think it'll probably evolve. I think distributors will probably become more tech enabled than what they do. Uh, and that'll serve everybody really well. Uh, I think undifferentiated us based suppliers will probably have a tough go of things. Um, I think that one threat that I mentioned direct to consumer, uh, customized retail, is yeah. going to be tougher to figure out, but I think there's a good solution for it. But, you know, there's this kind of classic uh, 
you know, give and take called the the make first buy decision in, in economics, which basically means, you know, if you're if you're gonna have a a cherry pie company, where does your business start and stop? Do you grow the cherries or do you buy the cherries? Do you sell the pies? You just make the pies and let a supermarket sell them. And that's one of the kind of cool and unique things about our industry is that in almost all of your industry out there, sales and marketing is within your own company with product. Um, not so much the case in ours um, because like we talked about before, it just makes a lot more sense economically for a distributor to be the one interacting with the corporate marketer and it makes zero sense economically for the supplier to just because of the sheer breadth of, of product scope and, and ability to sell. Um, and I don't see that fundamental economics changing. One of the questions I like to ask is that suppliers work with many distributors and they have a unique insight into the distributor model and business. Have you seen some best practices and advice you can share with distributors? You know, I th- there are, and I'll say a couple things, but I see this pattern. I have uh, this kind of prototype of this kind of distributor that we work with kind of in my head. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a handful of them across the country. Um, you know, you got your ice boxes and, and your brand aids and your CICs and the whole, really a whole bunch of different great groups of people. And, and that's not to leave anybody out, but uh, I, I see them doing a couple things, a couple behaviors that just seem to go together in common. Uh, one of them is highly creative work with a very collaborative bend to what they do. And they're always focused on adding more value to drive price points up rather than trying to close every deal. I think a lot of that probably stems from their, um, their sort of long-term view for their business because they know if they get skinny on price just to get kind of one deal to make their months or to hit a certain number or something like that, then that's probably going to become expected of them from some of their clients and become a habit and really hurt them longer term. And they want to pre- preserve the sanctity of, of their pricing power and, and the value and, and the just, yeah, I think, frankly, just the pride that they take in their business. So I think that's one part of it. Uh, another part is they all tend to be very, uh, very big on social, very big on social media, constantly mm-hmm. pumping out content that's unique and original and photographically beautiful. Yeah. They also incidentally tend to be the people who seem to do the most repeat orders and the most high price point orders and have really cool clients to work with because whether it's the energy that they bring to the table or the way that they're constantly radiating that energy through social, it's stuff that people want to be around. And if people want to be around you, then you kind of have your choice of the people who you surround your life with. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's easier said than done too, right? Like, and everybody says, be nice, work hard, have a great attitude. <laughs> Rubber hits the road. Sometimes it makes it, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, but when you're saying that, I see the brands you're talking about too, and I can see those principles. You can see the similarities in those principles. There's, there's something there in the strength of those those principles that you just mentioned um, because they've been proven across multiple brands. So you're right. It does take a lot uh-huh. of hard work. They did end up. They did end up at that place because of their hard work. Dan, Rumi Brand Suite is known for sophisticated design. Can you give us a peek behind the curtain as to how you develop a strong design emphasis? What goes on behind the scenes? This is 
a little bit outside of my purview. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a deals guy and a, and a business guy. But fortunately for us, uh, long before I got here, design was in Rumi and then eventually Rumi Brand Suite's DNA. Uh, one of the co-founders is Katie Lee, and she's an awesome human being and almost as good of a designer. Uh, her background is actually kind of more in the advertising world, but design is just sort of in her DNA. Uh, she walks around and, you know, frankly, she's kind of like, uh, like a, like a modern Jackie O, I guess. Yeah. Um, just kind of class and style and every, everything that she does, whether it's the way she holds her, you know, carries herself or, or, what her office looks like, kind of all of it. Uh, even down to her daughter. Her daughter, Sophie, is the cutest thing you've ever seen and always <laughs> extremely well-dressed. Um, <laughs> that's also kind of, you know, with being founded by a person like that and, and of course, Jay, who is a, you know, a true designer in his own right, but more on the product side of things. Um, not so much kind of a colorful, colorful patterns kind of guy. Although, like his wife, is actually also a very natty dresser. Um, even through, you know, to our literal, uh, very first Remy promo sales, Remy brand suite hire was Nicole Height. And she is, you know, uh, kind of a, I guess what, uh, a millennial version of Katie, maybe in that regard. Right. She's right. been the, the foundation of, of all of our branding and all of our design as, as a, uh, promo supplier and, that's sort of where all that comes from. So how to replicate that? Yeah. I have no idea, but I can say you get good people and good things happen. Yeah. Well, your team, uh, obviously then this, this excellent design is in your DNA already. You mentioned that. And when you stepped into the industry as a brand, you had that strength of that design behind you. How does your team gather inspiration? I mean, is this something that's just – it's such a part of their DNA and it's such an organic process for them naturally? Um, or do you have strategies how you gather for uh, fashion-forward merchandising and think through trends? I mean, are there systems or steps that you go through? You know, you know what I think is a great kind of case study in gathering inspiration is actually our creative team. Uh, so the creative team is headed up by Katie and it's four different uh, individuals uh, and they are tasked with a seeming contradiction, which is come up with a really cool, unique, impressive designs that will win deals for us in 24 hours and do a lot of them, right? And, and so we kind of have, we put, we put them in this tough situation because it's turned around really fast, great service experience, really timely, really punctual, really express, uh, but also very well thought out, very creative, very uh, carefully articulated design. It's, it's, it's a tough give and take. Um, but I think having that, that quick turn and that deadline almost, almost helps them. Um, and where they draw their inspiration is you know a whole bunch of things but i think ultimately it comes from the passion that they bring to doing great work because that's what drives them to rip through a company website and really get an understanding of it uh come up with 
other kind of collateral imagery that they can find and take inspiration from from Google Images and, and translate maybe a television commercial into a take on a step and repeat pattern for a custom fabric classic or me tote. And yeah. being able to just sort of maintain that level of it was a family friendly family family friendly program, so I'll say giving a crap um, about what you do is I think the key to that. You know, at one time in the industry, there was a very wide gap between fashion forward trends in retail and those in trends in the B2B and promo space. It almost seemed like we were a decade behind, like you said, in technology. Do you think that's the case now or do you think the gap has gotten much closer? Obviously, you would feel differently about it because of Rumi, uh, Rumi's success in retail and Rumi brand suite's success. But it seems to me that the gap has, has gotten much closer, much tighter. I think it it. Certainly, certainly has, but I think there's still something considerable there, and I, I think it's more generational than fashion trendish. Yeah, and yeah. I think where a lot of that stems from is how many how many VPs of product do you think you can find me at suppliers in the industry who are younger than thirty? Right, not a ton. Right, right, and right. you know it's not like somebody who is my age can't do the job, but at the same time, it's just a lot easier if you have more voices from your customer group, speaking of the end customer there, uh, to inform what you're putting out there. When I see that as a big challenge for many distributors uh, in the upcoming five to ten years, as we, we talk about the surge of the millennials and the buying positions that are going on in corporate America or in large organizations, mm-hmm. and you're definitely – they're feeling this tension now. I You have seen probably in the past five to seven years more asks, if you will, outside of of industry resources and more direct-to-retail um, so you're seeing retail impact distributors in a big way, and that's just going to keep becoming a big and big opportunity and challenge as we see in the road ahead. Are there trends other than in design that you see in retail that we should pay attention to? You know, one that's actually really big, and I think this is something where someone's going to come up with a good way to make this work for promo, is in consumer, there is, in retail, there's a huge fragmentation of brands stalwarts as is you know established as as nike are you know being upset not just by under armors to great fanfare but also to niche customer focused brands that are starting from scratch and leave the nikes of the world trying to play up uh playing, trying to play catch up and so you've got you know CrossFit brands like No Bull or Rogue, right? Or you have leisure wear types of uh, casual sneaker shoes like Allbirds. And those guys are coming up with new ideas and bringing them straight to customers and, and skipping retail where Nike formerly had another source of major leverage versus upstart competitors. And they're just saying, hey, here's what we are. And we are authentically created from human beings who are who wanted to see something for themselves and wanted to make it available to other people and it comes from a place of of their own demand and just wanting to share their idea and their passion for a shoe made out of wool or the best crossfit shoe you can buy for 250 dollars um and make that available and because of the internet and because of social and because of the democratization of e-commerce and distribution 
they're actually able to pull that off. Um, yeah. What does that mean for promo? I think what that means is, and again, it's a generational thing, but you know, that's what people are coming to expect. So you show up to an event and all 700 attendees are getting the exact same t-shirt or even something more utilitarian, like a lanyard. And that kind of clanks with people more than I think it used to, right? People want unique experiences and experiences that are, are customized to them. They also just want fewer things, but I think that's you know, another challenge for the industry. But uh, I think that's a trend from retail that someone is going to come up with a pretty clever way to, to crack the nut on that and create a great business around it. Customized experiences. That's a great point. Promo. That's a really great point. Dan, I appreciate it, man. I want to talk to you more. Likewise. And well, I, we got you camp going up, right? That's right. We'll, we'll chat then. Thanks, Dan. Sounds good, Bobby. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate soon. it. All Take right. care. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.